Dustin said I'm Hazen Stevens. I'm one of our uh, executive leaders here at Newbridge and with the International House of Prayer. And then I also serve as the domestic director with Finish the Task, which is our mission sending organization. And I am coming up on, it was 2006 when I first got introduced to the House of Prayer in February on uh, 212. We'll be celebrating, I believe, is it, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, is it 14 years of night and day worship and prayer? And so I've been here 13 of those years, honored to serve uh, as a part of the House of Prayer community. And it's just such a privilege whenever we get to uh, open up the word together. And I feel like in the same way that it's like an honor to have guests in your home and to break bread with them. Like I feel like when we get to break open the word together as a spiritual family, there's a certain sense in which there's just a sense of honor and privilege to get to be the one that kind of breaks the bread and blesses it for us, right? And passes it around. And that's kind of what I feel like my my role is uh, as a teacher tonight and, and as someone who's instructing us in the word, I feel like I get to break the bread that God has prepared for us and bless it and we get to partake of it. And, uh, and I know Dustin prayed, but we just, we just love to pray in this church, right? I wanna pray for us one more time because there's some specific things that God put on my heart um, as fruit that are gonna come out of tonight's teaching and I wanna ask God to do those things. So would you guys just join me again in prayer? at this moment. Father, I thank you so much that the Spirit of God, in Romans 8 it says, His Spirit bears witness with us that we are the children of God. And I just ask for that spirit of sonship, that spirit of adoption, to bear witness with our spirits tonight that we are God's children and to speak to us concerning what an incredible and good Heavenly Father we have. And Father, I pray that people wouldn't be drawn to the communicator or um, to any natural ability to articulate, but we pray that the Holy Spirit would be the one that would teach and instruct and that we would all together be drawn to the Father. That the things that I say over the next 30 to 40 minutes, we would all be drawn and left in awe of the goodness of the Father. So we say this is all for your glory, this is all worship unto you, God. Be with us tonight. Be here with, with us in our midst. Let us get a taste of what it's gonna be like one day in heaven when we are with you face to face. Just, your word says if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us, God. That's really what I want more than anything I want that same nearness that we felt in worship, I want it to permeate uh, the teaching of your word. I, I want it to permeate our moments of prayer and ministry, Lord. We ask Holy Spirit, draw near. Draw the person of Jesus near to us. Heavenly Father, be near in this time. And I pray in this room specifically for people that are battling shame and condemnation, uh, continual failure with the sin struggle or feeling like they've plateaued in their spiritual walk with you or in a place in their life. And I pray, God, that you would get us free from the ruts where we feel stuck, that we would begin to ascend in knowing you where we've plateaued, that we would begin to pursue again, perhaps where we've grown faint or weary. And I pray shame would be broken off, we'd be cleansed and healed and made whole Freedom, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we just proclaim freedom over this house. 
we proclaim the Spirit of God brings freedom as we come to know who we are, and more importantly, whose we are. So come and be with us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a message that is near and dear to my heart because I feel like much as Dustin testified, I've got to change my notifications so that I'm not pinging up here. All right, do not disturb, it's turned on. This is a message that is near and dear to my heart because I feel like the prayer to God as a father and to learn what it means to be a son was essentially my, the closest I can remember to having a, a salvation moment was when I prayed a prayer like that. And it was fun, this past year I was at a conference at the church where I first prayed that prayer and I actually went up into the place in the balcony and sat down in the seat where I prayed this prayer for the, for the first time that I can remember. And it was a message by Louis Giglio, he's a pretty well-known teacher and preacher in our city and at the time he had a college ministry called 722 that met on Tuesday nights and I would go in college and I'd reached a real low place in my life because I had built my whole life around trying to uh, have a certain, pers uh, a certain persona of success. I was a business school student at Emory University. I had um, uh, the, the right girlfriend, the right undergraduate degree that was my pursuit. I had uh, money, I had uh, the, the right uh, official positions in the campus clubs, and I had kind of uh, on the external everything that you would want uh, as, a, as a young person whose life was headed in a, a good direction. But inside, I was broken. I was secretly wrestling with addictions to pornography. I was uh, struggling with uh, broken trust in my relationship with my parents, where my mom and my stepdad had recently begun to undergo a, a, a separation and then an eventual divorce. And um, my dad, my entire childhood had wrestled with, with alcoholism and there was just brokenness in my home and, and mistrust. There was brokenness in my heart towards my friendship relationships because they were built m more on uh, superficial things than on anything of meaning or substance. And though I was surrounded by people, I, I felt deeply alone and made some bad choices and so this dating relationship that I had that meant everything in the world to me suddenly ended. I found myself without any close relationships that felt meaningful and I found myself having so many of the things that I thought would make me happy and I was in possession of them and yet I wasn't happy. And I was experiencing deep disillusionment and so much of my story is I lived my life saying I, I'm not gonna fall into the same traps that my my dad fell into or that my mother fell into. And so living contrary to a lot of what I'd seen modeled to me growing up and saying I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna live better. But I found myself repeating the exact same mistakes. And have you ever had a moment in which a preacher's message just rang so true in your present circumstances that you just felt like this isn't a person speaking to me, this is God speaking to me. 
And I can remember that night at 722, Louis Giglio summarized and said very clearly, I've heard thousands of messages since and very few of them can I recall kind of the, the outline of the bullet point, but this one felt so profound to me because it was so descriptive of exactly where I was. And he said, so many of you have looked at the examples that have been given to you by your mothers and your fathers, and you've lived contrary to them saying, I never want to be like that, but the very focus that you've put upon them in judgment is causing you to repeat the exact same mistakes. And I said, that's exactly me, I'm guilty. And I just remember feeling such a deep sense of conviction that with all my human effort, I tried to escape the mistakes of my parents, but I found myself stumbling into the exact same curses. And then, he, and then he gave the solution. He said the solution is not to try not to be like your parents, it's to get new spiritual DNA and to become like your heavenly father. And I remember that word cut me to the heart. And I just said, I've been pursuing the wrong solution to my brokenness, and I said, God, if what he's saying is true, I wanna live the rest of my life not trying to not be like somebody who wounded me, but to be like the one in whose image I am created. And so God, if what he's saying is really true, you be my father and I'll be your son. I just remember praying that in simple faith. And over a course of weeks and months, things began to just rapidly change my life. And in those six months, I went from that very low place in my life to being filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, began dating the girl that would become my wife and received a full-time call to ministry. When you reach those radical places of brokenness and you call out to God from that place, it's amazing how the Father runs to meet you. How he puts a robe on your shoulders and a ring on your finger and sandals on your feet. And throws you a party. And so I very much resonated with Amy Lyle's message last week. I wanna give us a quick summary and just talk about the goodness of the Father because it's so so profound. So Amy, last week, she talked about what is the story of the prodigal son really about? For those of you that weren't here, I'm going to give you what were the highlights for me at least. And I just love this. It's so simple, but so true. The message of the prodigal son really isn't about the son at all because there's nothing notable about him. The message of the prodigal son is actually all about the goodness of the father. And that so resonated with me because as I was beginning to explore what was on my heart for this week's message, shouting to me from the scripture was this, this invitation to remember the goodness of the Father. And if you take nothing else away from this message tonight, I pray that you are strengthened in the knowledge of how good God is towards you. Because if you're convinced of that, you will live a way more faithful life, a way more obedient life, and ultimately I think a way happier life because God is really, really good. He's a good, good father. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Does anybody else have that song going off in their head as I'm saying that? It's just me, okay. So where do we find ourselves in this story? You know, some of us resonate with the prodigal and the message I just shared about my own life, you know, that there was uh, places where I very much resonated with the story of the prodigal son. I had a prodigal season where I was away from God, but some of us may resonate with the story of the older brother, the one who refused to celebrate and refused to acknowledge the goodness of the father towards them, towards him 
and, and towards the, the son who was undeserving. But what's interesting is both were found outside the father's house because of the disobedience of their heart because they didn't realize how good the father was. I thought this was a, an awesome point that Amy made. The younger son didn't just receive forgiveness, which is the picture of the robes and the sandal and the ring. Like he didn't just have to receive restoration. Um, he also had to receive celebration and blessing. And what shame sometimes robs us of is it tells us this lie. Sure, you can be forgiven, but you'll never really be loved. He's only forgiving you because he has to forgive you, right? That somehow God's mercy and kindness is begrudging, not an overflow of a loving heart. And that's a lie. He's not just the God who forgives you. He's the God who loves you and celebrates you and says, behold, it was right that we celebrate because my son who is dead is now alive. So we should feast, we should celebrate, we should rejoice, we should bless. And what's cool about that parable is Jesus actually tells three parables there, okay? And you know, anytime somebody says something three times, they're really serious about it, right? And you know what's amazing about those three parables, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the prodigal son? is that each one of those parables ends with a big party. He says, when he brings the sheep home, he gathers his friends and he celebrates because the sheep that was lost has been found. When the woman founds the missing piece, of the missing coin in her collection, says she invites her friends and she celebrates and says the coin that I was missing was lost. And when the father welcomes home the prodigal son, he says, my son who is dead, now he's alive. It's right that we would celebrate. And then he says a part that's actually literal, not figurative or metaphorical. It says when one sinner repents, the angels of heaven, they celebrate around the throne. God is actually the God of the big party. This whole human history is going to end in a big party called the wedding supper of the Lamb. God is all about celebration. He commands feasts in the scripture. And I just think it's amazing that this is the goodness of the heart of God towards us, that despite all of our failure and our brokenness, you know, I can remember times when I had just painful times of repentance, weeping, snotting, just the ugly cry, you know what I'm talking about. And just to think that in that moment, when I was a sinner in repentance, the you know, angel Steve and angel Bob, they're high-fiving in heaven, right? I don't know if there's actually an angel Steve or an angel Bob. There is an angel Mike and an angel Gabe. Angel Mike and angel Gabe, they're high-fiving in heaven. They're going, yeah, because they're rejoicing over the repentance of the human heart. He's the God of the big party. God is incredibly good. And what does that tell us? That tells us that in the picture of the prodigal son, when the father celebrates and receives him at the son's lowest point, it tells us how good the father really is. No one at that party, this was another great point that I think Amy made, no one at that party was saying, wow, look at how good that son is because that son had done nothing good. He had done nothing exceptional. He'd squandered his father's inheritance, run out of money in the midst of a, a drought in the land, and then he decided to come home. There's nothing notable about that, right? What was notable was the goodness of the father to receive him back in that condition and completely restore him. 
And what we have to realize is that yes, that's kindness received to us, but when we receive that kindness, it actually brings glory to God. Because what that mercy and that kindness does is it restores sons and daughters, right? Because that father didn't need another servant in his house. What he wanted was to restore his son. So in tonight's message, having kind of previewed where we were last week, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about where we're gonna go tonight and, and where we'll ultimately end next week. In tonight's message, I'm gonna take us all the way back to the garden. And we're gonna be looking at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And there's a beauty and a kindness to the heart of the Father that we find in those passages. And there's also an incredibly dark tragedy in the brokenness of the fall. So we're gonna go all the way back to the garden and then we're gonna go all the way forward to Zion to reveal the ultimate triumph of God's goodness and kindness to us. So Genesis to Revelation in about 25 to 30 minutes. We'll look at how Christ and our intimacy and our identity were restored and how we were part of both the breaking of humanity in the fall, but ultimately we get to play a part in God's redemption as all creation is made new. And we're gonna close with Romans 8, which beautifully summarizes tonight's main point. And I wanna just call it out right now and then we'll revisit it throughout the message. See, identity, if we wanna talk about this, the series title is called From Shame to Sonship, right? And it's a message about identity. And if we wanna really define what does identity come from, I believe identity is first established through intimacy. Meaning we really get our identity from the people that we're closest to. See, our mothers, our fathers, our spouses, these are the ones that bestow on us in terms of human relationship the most identity and the same is true of our Father in heaven. Identity is established through intimacy and what we see in the garden is when we lost intimacy with God, we lost our sense of identity. And the same is true for us today. When we lose our sense of intimacy, or we lack a sense of intimacy, then we will have a shaky and oftentimes broken identity. But when our intimacy is restored, our identity is established and we can walk free from shame and condemnation because we realize the mistakes I make are not what define who I am. And this is a mind-blowing concept we think oftentimes that our, who we are is defined by our performance, meaning, of course, I am what I do, right? Well, what the Bible says is that's not actually true. It's, it's partly true in the sense that as who we are changes, what we do will change, right? But the thing that defines you most is not so much what you do. What you do is a fruit of really what you believe. And what you believe, and especially what you believe about God, is what defines not just who you are, but how you behave. And when we wanna talk about what, what really comes down to, what changes the human heart, what changes our behavior, what really makes us 
who we are. It's this miracle of putting our faith fully in Christ, his sacrifice, his atonement, his resurrection, and ultimately his glorious ascension and return, right? The fullness of the narrative of the gospel. And it's like when we, we believe this, the Bible says we do the work of God. We believe upon the one whom the Father has sent. And when we do that, that changes our heart in a way so fundamental that Jesus can only describe it as a new birth. And when you have a new birth, see the old things that were true about you, they're not true anymore. And you get a new identity, and in that new identity, you get a new father. And in now having restoration and intimacy with your heavenly father, you can't help but imitate the one in whose image you were created. You begin to live by the spirit, as Romans 8 says, and you begin to cry out, Abba, Father. So we're gonna talk about that. But I wanna go, go all the way back to the garden and, uh, and look at the picture of, of the heart of the proud papa in creating everything. Genesis 1:26. If you wanna open your Bible to the first three chapters of Genesis, I didn't give these uh, notes yet to our, our people, so I don't know if they can throw those up, but I, I, I doubt they can here last minute. So I'm gonna invite you guys just to open your Bibles up and follow along with me as we kind of read through some of these scriptures. So it's amazing as we see in Genesis 1, day after day, God is in the process of creating. And he makes the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, the sea, the dry land, and everything that is in them. And he concludes with the crown of his creation, a human being made in his own image. Genesis 1.26 says, the Trinity speaking within itself, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So verse 27, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Verse, uh, and then Genesis 2-7, it says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into man's nostril, and the man became a living person. And what's striking about this is God first created humanity chiefly among his created order and exclusively to bear his image. And then literally he gave to human beings all the rest of creation to rule over. Then he breathes into man and the ones that he fashioned with his own hands, and this speaks of the unique mark of God on humanity. So we are those who bear his image, have been fashioned by his own hands, and God breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. I can think of a no more intimate picture of creator and created. God made nothing else in creation in that same way. He spoke and made light. He spoke and made the celestial bodies. He spoke and separated the heavens from the earth. He spoke and created the seas. He spoke and created the dry land. He spoke and created the creatures that crawled on and the animals in the sea. He spoke, he spoke, he spoke, and then he gets to the one that's to bear his image and he reaches down and he puts his hands, the hands of God, into the dust of the earth and he fashions and he shapes and then he breathes. How much did God love something that he made with his very own hands? 
And what does he do? What's the immediate thing that he does after he's created them? We see in Genesis 1:28. He makes them, he fashions them, man and woman in his own image, and it says, God blessed them and said. God blesses. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish and the sea, the birds and the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground. And it was amazing just kind of reading this passage. And I pray that this, this thought would marinate with you the same way it's marinated with me all week. Genesis 1.29 and, and 1.30. Then God said, look, exclamation point. That's what the New Living Translation says. I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. I have given every plant as food for all the wild animals and the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. Look, I've given you everything. I imagine as a proud papa, he shapes and forms us from the dust with the crown of his creation, the ones that he breathed into our very nostrils and made us filled with his life with the life of God. And then the very next thing he does is he blesses us to rule over his creation and he says, look what I'm giving you. You know, I remember one of the most uh, great moments with my parents was when they gave me my first car. And they said, come out in the driveway and had to close my eyes and they pulled up in the driveway. I think it was like a 1996 or seven Toyota Forerunner. It was blue with these big wheels and a bumping sound system. And I was so excited, jumping up and down. Thank you, mom. Thank you, dad. And they were so excited because they'd been teaching me to drive and they were excited to give me this gift, right? Ecstatic. Like they had invested money and time and energy in getting me something and then teaching me to use it. And I I was just struck by part of what was so special about that gift. It's the same thing that was moving in my heart as a father when I gave my daughters their bicycles this Christmas. They got two new bikes, my five-year-old and my four-year-old, Kesson and Pearl, and they were so excited and they'd been asking for weeks you know, for, for their new bicycle and Pearl wanted a, if you know Paw Patrol, it's a cartoon series and she wanted her sky bike, which is one of the characters in the cartoon. She knew she was gonna get her sky bike and she was so excited and she was excited about getting the bike, but you know, I was excited about teaching her to ride the bike because more special than the gift a lot of times is the intimacy that comes in sharing in that gift together as a parent and a child. And that's what I'm excited about as a father. And I can't help but read into the story of Genesis the excitement of the heart of the father at creating this amazing world with all these creatures and then establishing humanity to govern over them. And then he says, look what I've made for you. I wanna teach you to rule it with me. Can you just feel the heart of the father brimming with delight when on the sixth day he had completed all creation and up to that point at the end of each day he said it's good, what I made is good and he declared at the end of each day over his own labors it's good, it's good but the sixth day comes he crowns creation with humanity and now he says it is very good. What I've done is very good. And I just feel the heart of the father brimming with pleasure, that same father that runs to meet the prodigal, that same father that 
that undoes the tragedy of the fall by sacrificing his beloved son Jesus for the restoration of all of us. He's consistent from Genesis to Revelation in the gospels, in the epistles. This is who our God is. He is a loving father. He is creator, but in his identity as creator, more than just creator, he is father. And here we are in this story, our sons and daughters. It was very good. It was very good. Genesis 1:31. it says, God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good good. See, he had always intended for us to be the children who rule over creation along with him, and he entrusted to us all that he had made because of his great love and his pleasure. And we must see that this is who God is, and this is always how he wanted us to be. When we see the narrative of scripture and how consistent it is, our hearts are filled with faith. You know, there are literally dozens of writers of this amazing book that we have, the Bible. But from opening chapter to concluding chapter, we see that the one that these different people wrote about, there's no divergence of opinion. He is a good father through and through. And the Holy Spirit shouts that to us through the pages of scripture. God is good. What he made was good. And when he intended to put us in charge of it as his image bearers, All of that, that whole plan was very good. And he hasn't given up on it. Despite our detour into sin, God is directing the path of human history and creation back to that divine order because he wants humanity to rule and reign with him as sons and daughters in deep and profound intimacy. And can I tell you, beloved, in this room, it's what you were created for. It's your destiny. And it's been his plan since the beginning. And it's gonna come to pass. You are going to rule and reign with your father over the creation that he has created for you. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. And we just get little tastes of it now, but the tastes tell us of the fullness that's to come. Man, I wish I didn't even have to, I wish we could just, we could just stop the message there, just worship God and just say, God, you're so good and just sing some amazing songs about the goodness of God. But sadly, chapter three is coming. So I wanna tell you something as I was reading through, you know, a lot of times you hear different people kind of give their thoughts on what was the original sin, right? Was it pride in the human heart? Was it rebellion? But I felt like as I was reading it, at least from my perspective, really the deterioration of Adam and Eve's relationship with God was rooted in mistrust. They did not believe God was truly good towards them, despite all that he had done for them. They believed the serpent when the serpent implied God was withholding. I believe there's a lesson for us in that. Because I think the serpent still to this day tries to run that same scheme on us and come to us and say, God's not really good, he's withholding. Sure, he paid your bills the last time, but how do you know he's really gonna come through next time? And see, that's why we need to have confidence not in what God has done, but who God is. Because when we put confidence in who God is, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can say, if God chooses to deliver, great. 
But if he chooses not to, I've still gone all in on God. Because ultimately his plan is good, his ways are good. But see, Eve wasn't yet convinced. She thought God was withholding. And conversely to this, our restoration in intimacy with God depends on our ability to trust his goodness towards us even when we don't fully see it. Romans 8, 28. How many of us have quoted that to ourselves or quoted it to a friend during a hard time? And it kind of feels cliche, right? God's working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we hear it. And can I tell you that part of us that feels like that's cliche, I would challenge us, that's cynicism that needs to get rooted out of us. Because when you really believe that, that God is good towards you in every situation, that God was good towards Jesus in his crucifixion, that that was the kindness of God working in perfection. See, we see it after there's a resurrection, but in the moment of crucifixion, it can be very hard to see. We end up crying out, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But yet still Jesus trusted and said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. So we know there's a wrestle there, but when we put our trust firmly in God, that is when intimacy and ultimately identity can be restored. Now let's just listen to the lie of the serpent, Genesis 3, 4. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And just like so many of the lies we hear today from that same hissing serpent, there was a measure of truth to the words he spoke. And the woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. In that moment, something that they had never felt before in the entirety of their lives. Shame entered the human experience because their eyes were opened and they realized we have disobeyed God and we are no longer good, we in fact are evil. We have sinned and the glory that we once had now has been violated and that, that intimacy with God has been broken and sin has transgressed. We've transgressed in sin, we've broken our communion with God and they felt deeply ashamed. Shame is the revelation that we, as human beings, are in fact fallen and broken. And I think it's amazing, their response to the entrance of shame was they quickly gathered some fig leaves and it says they sewed them together and tried to cover their nakedness. I think back to, as a young person, when shame would hit my heart as I wrestled with sexual immorality and I would fall into sexual perversion and I would get hit with shame and I had no relationship with God of repentance and confession. I, I can remember at times, perhaps you've had this similar experience, I'll just be very real with you, feeling so dirty that I felt like uh, I would just try to take a shower to clean, get myself clean, but it, the sense of dirtiness that was in my heart couldn't be washed away by water. 
It was that same feeling they must have felt in the garden when they felt shame encroach on their soul and they realized we're dirty, we're broken, and all they want to do is cover that shame and hide from their good father. And as we put ourselves in the position of Adam and Eve, we have to realize that we ourselves, we pick up fig leaves all the time to try and cover our own shame. Just think for a moment, what are the fig leaves that you've tried to sew together at different moments in your life to cover your brokenness, right? I mean, I think we can look at so many modern entertainers, celebrities, business people, politicians, and they're just sewing together fig leaves of money, political power, influence, um, if I can just get enough likes, if I can uh, just escape with uh, the sense of shame with enough alcohol or uh, enough uh, drug use or enough food or enough shopping, I mean, all those things are the insufficient answers of our society to the brokenness of humanity. And we as Christians, we don't have to settle for fig leaves, but still so many times we do, right? Right? And I was just kind of meditating because later on God gives them beautiful clothes that are fashioned, that he fashions themselves out of animals. But I was just meditating on the insufficiency of fig leaves versus clothes made out of leather, made out of animal skin, right? Like I imagine, I imagine fig leaf, you don't have to go there fully with me, but I imagine fig leaf clothes are a little drafty, okay? I, I imagine they're a little, we were talking with the worship team, they're like probably itchy too. I was like, that's right. And if you've, if you've ever like tried to sew together leaves, like that's not a great way to make a garment, okay? Leaves are not very resilient. They don't last very long, okay? This was a desperate and clearly temporary effort to hide the shame of their brokenness from God. And it was completely insufficient. And it should speak to us about the insufficiencies of our efforts to hide our shame and our brokenness from God and from each other. See, because they weren't just ashamed to be in front of God, they were now ashamed to be in front of each other. And it's kind of a detour, but I do want to say this because I think it's profound, right? Humanity, when we fell from glory, we entered into nakedness, and nakedness was the first thing that it describes us being ashamed of, right? And so Jesus, in order to take away the shame of our nakedness, was stripped of his garments and displayed, nailed naked to a cross. We don't like to think of the nakedness of Jesus on that cross because it's graphic and horrific, right? But he was displayed openly in the most shameful way, mocked, spat upon, scourged. Not only was his external body and his body parts exposed for all the world's mockery, but literally his physical body bludgeoned, broken. And in his embracing of his nakedness, he removed our shame. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they ate the fruit, they sinned, and what God said was true. They immediately discerned they were evil. They felt that shame, and we've been feeling that shame ever since as humanity. Genesis 3.8, now they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. 
We cover our brokenness, as I said, with performance, religiosity, money, appearance. We dull that shame with alcohol, fantasy, or we escape into media, food, or entertainment. These are the inadequate efforts. And God comes and he says, Adam and Eve, where are you? And what have you done? And then God pronounces a curse over them when just the very chapter before he created them and blessed them. Now because of their disobedience, he places a curse on them and in cursing them, all of the creation that was under their authority became subject to that curse. God says, I'll sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you'll give birth. You will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. So enmity between man and woman, discord, oppression, pain. And to Adam, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I command you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. And all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it, the New Living Translation says. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. And by the sweat of your brow you'll have food to eat until you return to the ground. For from dust you were made, and to dust you will return. So woman's curse was pain, seeking to control, but... Uh, having man rule over her, oppression. And for men, it was a struggle to, to make a living, thorns and thistles, having no fruitfulness, living by the sweat of the brow and ultimately returning to dust. And he curses them. And in them, all their progeny through all generations. And humanity and creation descends into the fall. But God in his mercy does something in verse 21 that is prophetic act and promise. It says the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. See, he replaces their fig leaves with an adequate covering that covers their shame and he makes the clothing of animal skins which is a picture of the sufficiency of the atonement of Christ, the Lamb of God whom he would provide to take away the sins of the world. And as I said before, consider how much Better is a covering of animal skin in comparison to sewed fig leaves. One is temporary, partial, and wears out easily. That's our own answer to our shame, but ultimately, God will answer with a sufficient covering. It was God's pledge to us to ultimately remove our shame. You guys still with me? Okay. It gets a lot better, because that was dark. That was hard to descend there for a moment into the fall, and even in some ways to find ourselves in that fallen place, right? But when we do that, okay, I, I, I think this is so true. Oftentimes in preaching the gospel, we go into the Ten Commandments, and we have to expose the reality that all of us have broken those commandments. Like, we do this in sharing the gospel. It's, it's so important not that we be shamed, but that we would be convicted by the righteousness of God and how far we've fallen from that standard. And when we look at the, the story of Genesis, we see the goodness of the Father and the complete betrayal of humanity. And the reality is, as intimate as Adam and Eve were with God the Father, walking with him in the garden, we think, oh, I wouldn't have done. Don't, some, don't all of us kind of believe at some level we would have done something different when the serpent came and talked, now serpent, get out of here. Like, I'm not gonna listen to you. We all think that's what that would, no Eve, don't eat the fruit. What are you thinking? Come on, you know? Like we all think we would have somehow done differently. But if Adam and Eve, 
who are the crown of God's creation, created in perfect beauty, intimacy, harmony with God in his garden. If they made that mistake, beloved, I don't think any of us would have fared any better. And what we have to realize is that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. And to truly appreciate the heights to which the gospel dignifies and glorifies the broken human frame we have to also simultaneously recognize that all flesh is grass and it's fading away, that man has no righteousness of its own, that all our righteousness is but filthy rags. So we had to kind of go for a moment into the brokenness of the fall and feel, we should feel the shame that our brokenness brings upon the human condition because that's real, right? But now the promise of the removal of that shame, not just from us, but from all creation. And we see it in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible, skip there, and about mm, seven minutes, we're gonna wrap up. Worship team, if you guys wanna just kinda have in your mind that we're gonna come about seven minutes. I wanna talk about Revelation 21 and 22. Now my Bible titles Revelation 22, Eden Restored. And there's a simple little phrase in there that is so profound and powerful, but you can miss it so easily. See if you find it in your Bible. It's Revelation 22.3. You only appreciate in the context of what I just shared with you. And the phrase is, there shall be no more curse. Can somebody say hallelujah? (laughs) There shall be no more curse. Like there is a moment coming when not just in our spirits and the gift of new birth, see, because it says that because Jesus hung on the cross from us, there's no curse of the, of the law or sin or death. That curse has been removed in a measure. But there's a day coming when God makes everything new and all of creation is restored in its fullness, even human beings in glorified bodies on the earth. All the earth will be like the Garden of Eden and there will be no more curse. This is a reference to what we just read in Genesis chapter three. And when God removes the curse, all that will be left is the very blessing that was intended from the beginning. The throne of God and the lamb shall be in it. This is the city of God. And his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. Verse Five, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. In this passage, we see the fullness of God's plan to restore the intimacy. They shall see his face, the glory and the purity. There'll be no night there and the authority. They shall reign forever and ever of his people. The very glory, the very light the very authority that we forsook in the garden, God's gonna give it all back to humanity. All because of Jesus. See, this is what God has created for us, not just to live eternally, but to live eternally in intimacy, glory, and authority. You can just look at somebody and say, one day your dusty days are gonna be over. <laughs> okay. One day your dusty days are gonna be over because the curse said that you're going back to dust, that death has a hold of the human condition. 
I got to skip forward to this passage because it's just so amazing. 1 Corinthians 15, 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. Who was the man of dust? Adam was the man of dust. Who are those who are made of dust? We're the ones made of dust. But as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Meaning one day, your dusty days are gonna be over, you're gonna arise in glory, and you're gonna shine like stars in the firmament. And there will be no more curse. And all those who are victorious, hallelujah, they're gonna reign with Christ forever. See, this is what God created us for, and it says in Romans chapter eight, now, We'll go deeper into this next week, but if you read Romans chapter eight in the context of what we just talked about, it says all creation is subject to futility and it groans for the revealing of the sons of God because when we're revealed in glory, not only are our dusty days over, but the dusty days of creation are over. And the curse from which all creation groans is going to be relieved when humanity reclaims its ascendancy and its rulership over all creation. And we tend to kind of look at each other and go, oh, we're going to rule and reign with Christ. And we have no reality, no true comprehension of what it means, how far we fell, but in God's goodness, how high we will be restored to actually rule and reign with the heavenly man whose image we will bear in glory. This is the gospel. This is what we believe. And I don't want to be overly critical of the church, but sometimes we just dilute all this down to health, wealth, and everything else. And we don't realize the fullness of what the gospel offers us and invites us into. And when you begin to think of yourself as someone who is going to one day inhabit heavenly places of position and authority over all creation, and that was what God intended for you. And it was never on your own merit, but it was on the merit of Christ and his sacrifice. And God's pulled us up from the ash pit. And literally, as the Psalm says, he's going to seat us among princes. You just can't help but just worship God and go, hallelujah. Like from how, how far I've fallen to what heights you're going to restore. There'll be no more curse. There'll be no more curse. It's like really good news. It'll make you want to tell someone about King Jesus. Like it'll make you want to live righteous and holy. Like it'll make you want to go, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Like I'm ready to inhabit the image of the heavenly man. Revelation 21.3. I think whoever's shouting this, an angel, maybe Jesus, I'm not sure, but they have the revelation what I just said. Revelation 21, three, I heard a loud shout from the throne. What, does the, what is the loud shout? How important is something that is shouted from the throne of the Almighty? And it says, look or behold. It's shouting from the throne of all creation, the throne above every throne, the highest place of government and authority in all creation. I mean, there are billions of galaxies out there spinning from that first moment when a voice spoke from that throne and said, let there be, right? Like creation is continuing. Everything, the motion continues from the explosion that came when God said, and from that same throne, there's a voice that says, look, God's home is now among his people. 
coming soon to a planet near you. He will live with them and they will be his people. Why is Jerusalem a big deal? Because Jerusalem is the city where God will live with his people. God himself will be with them. And what will he do? He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Revelation 21, five, the one sitting on the throne said, look, behold. Now it's not just a voice from the throne. The one sitting on the throne speaks. So there's a voice making a proclamation to John. John catches the proclamation and it's from the throne and then it transitions and now the one who sits on the throne is speaking. And he says, I'm making everything new. And then, I don't know how John felt about this, but he goes, he look, he look, it said, the, the one on the throne said to me, write this down. Hey, you, write this down. For what I tell you is trustworthy and true. It is finished. What was the final thing Jesus said upon the cross? It is finished. Do you know it was finished then? It was finished then. There is only one who's worthy, the one in the midst of the throne to take the scroll from the hand of the father. Like it was finished when the lamb slain from the foundations of the earth took his place on that cross. He put principalities and powers to open shame. It was finished then. And now the father's just saying, I'm appropriating what was finished and he just says, Write it down, it's trustworthy and true, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my, what does it say? It says, they'll be my children is what mine says. Not a servant, not a soldier, You'll be his children, hallelujah, because that's always what he always wanted. What he wanted since the garden was children to rule and reign with him, children that he could give his creation to. We said, no, we're gonna be prodigal sons and daughters. We're gonna run our own way. But when we came back, the father ran out to meet us. He said, I've got a plan, I'll restore it all. Behold, he makes all things new. In Revelation 21, 27, a few verses down, it says, nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He knows your name. He's got your name in his book. And you're gonna inherit all things. So it is tragic to consider the fallenness of Adam and Eve. Worship team, you guys can come. It is similarly awesome to consider the fullness of our restoration that is yet to come. So the question I wanna ask, we can ponder these things, but how do we actually get from the evil and the shamefulness of our fallen condition to the fullness and the redemption of Zion? Because sometimes it feels like a long road below. <laughs> sometimes it feels like a 
narrow road, a narrow and difficult road is the way Jesus put it. But I think Paul had some insights on this. You know, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul actually says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And Paul actually says, behold, all things have been made new. Speaking of the glory of the new creation in you. There's a shout at the restoration of all things. Behold, I make all things new, right? But there's a whisper from the gospels. The place I started is in your spirit. The place I started is in the miracle of new birth. See, he's making all things new, but the first place he started to restore and make things right is in the human spirit, the crown of his creation. See, all creation is groaning for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. But those who walk by the spirit, those are the ones who are the sons and the daughters of God. And the spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God and that we're no longer slaves and in bondage to fear. But we are those who cry out, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy. Close with this verse. Jesus came to restore all things. The first thing he teaches us is a new way of relating to God that's rooted in the reality of heaven. He comes and he teaches us to become children of God and and we'll pick up there next week how he taught us to pray to the Father, how he taught us to trust the Father, how he taught us this complete paradigm shift that each and every one of us can have God as our father. There's this beautiful passage that describes what we have come to as the born again church of God. Hebrews 12, 22. If you want to flip there with me, let's read it together and, and then we'll worship. And let's all stand together. Hebrews 12, 22, and just open to it. Describing Sinai, the contrast between Sinai, which represents the earthly law, and how under the earthly law there was a holiness to God, but humans were completely insufficient and inadequate and actually terrified by that holiness. But it says, that's not what we've come to in the new covenant. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than the things than that of Abel. See, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, they have two sons, Cain and Abel, they fight. Cain ends up killing Abel. Abel was innocent and righteous. His offering was found pleasing in the sight of God, a picture of the atonement of Christ. And when the blood is on the ground, it says that that blood cried out before God in judgment against unrighteous Cain for having killed his brother. But what Hebrews 12 tells us is that the blood of Jesus is different than the blood of Abel, whereas Abel's blood demanded justice for those who were unrighteous and murdered Abel. 
Jesus' blood cries out, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. His blood actually cries out for mercy to all those who will choose to receive it and the right to become children of God. So if you're hearing this and you go, I'm touched by the heavenly vision to live with a different understanding of my identity. I don't wanna just know what it means to be a son or daughter of God so that I can feel better about myself. I wanna know what it means to be a son or daughter of God so that I can live in agreement with what God's ultimate purpose is for my life, to rule and reign with him. See, Romans 8, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation. I think you could very appropriately substitute the word shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to embrace that truth But we also need to realize there are higher things than God's called us to than being uh, emotionally shame-free. There's actually an identity and an eternal calling that rests on each and every life of every person in this room who has called themselves to be a child of God. You have come to a heavenly city. You've been born of the image of a heavenly man. There was a purpose for you in the garden and you are entering into that purpose to rule and reign with Christ. And he's inviting you to get about the business today of being a son and a daughter of God. So the invitation tonight for prayer is for a higher vision of what it means to be his child. To actually see the narrative of scripture from God's perspective and say, God, give me revelation of what it means that I'm a child who will rule and reign with you. One who is to have authority, glory, and life eternally. So if this is touching your spirit and you want to receive prayer, you want someone to minister to you, a deeper revelation of your identity as a son and daughter who will rule and reign with him, I want to just invite you, you can come forward. We're going to pray for you. And I'm going to begin to pray even now as we come forward. Father, I thank you for the revelation in the word of God that instructs us to live not as the disqualified or the shameful or the broken, but to live as a heavenly people, to live as sons and daughters with a different understanding of our identity. And I thank you that it's the blood of Jesus alone that cleanses our minds and our hearts and lets us come to this heavenly city. God, apply the blood right now. You, the mediator of a better covenant, apply the blood to hearts and minds. Apply the blood to places of shame. And Father, for people in this room who may not feel like they're right with you today, God, who may feel like I felt when I prayed in that service so many years ago and say, God, I want you to be my father and I want to be your son. Lord, I pray you put that prayer in people's hearts right now. Whatever prayer is needed for them to draw near to you, whatever prayer is needed right now to cast off the fig leaves and to put on Christ, whatever prayer is needed right now to break the power of shame off a son and a daughter that you're preparing to rule and reign. Oh, spirit of the living God, I pray, Father, you would deliver right now from fear. Lord, where fear drove Adam and Eve to hide from God, where shame drove Adam and Eve to hide from God. We declare tonight, God, the blood of Jesus lets us come boldly to your throne. We say there is no need to hide because though we have nothing, God, you welcome us, hallelujah. As prodigal sons and daughters, you welcome us. You run to us, God. Quicken by your spirit right now the truth that we are the children of God. 
Let hearts and minds be branded right now with revelation. I am a child of God. I am a son and a daughter of a heavenly father. Lord, release the spirit of sonship in this room in Jesus' name.